Good morning, everybody. Um, I want to invite our children to Children's Church. And there they go. Not quite the exodus, but, you know. Um, before we begin, I just wanted to set up uh, our Advent series, because last week we had a guest preacher, and, and he didn't get a chance to really explain what's going on with the Advent series. If you look at the graphic, the Advent series is called Strangers. And what we're going to do through the four Sundays of Advent is look through the Old Testament, primarily, at people who were not part of Israel who came to know the Lord through Israel. They were strangers, but they came in. And how did they come in, and what led them in, and, and what were the events that were going on? So they were strangers, but they came to know the Lord. And then on Easter, we'll look, or at Easter, um, I'm still thinking about the, the uh, business meeting, because um, March had this huge spike in attendance. And anyway, what we'll do on Christmas Sunday is we'll look at the Magi, who are in the New Testament, and they came seeking the Lord. And then since December this year has five Sundays, the fifth Sunday, um, Dan Stromberg is going to wrap up the series by looking at Philippians uh, chapter 2, where it talks about, remember that you were strangers and aliens to the covenants of the promise, but you've been brought near. Um, so we're looking primarily through the old covenant as we're looking forward toward uh, Jesus coming so that we might be no longer strangers and aliens. Uh, so we're going to take a look at some of the strangers. So if you remember last week, uh, Bob had preached on uh, the book of Ruth. And we saw Ruth was a Moabitess, and she was supposed to be excluded from the covenant of Israel, and she was supposed to be outside, but she was what Bob had said was a Hesed person, this covenant-abiding love. And so he pointed out to us last week that there were two words that come up often in the book of Ruth, Hesed, which is that covenant love, and then the other one is Shov, which is to return and repent. And so that's what we saw happen with Ruth and with, primarily with Naomi. It was really Naomi's story. And we wound up seeing what happened to Ruth, the Moabitess. And she marries this great guy named Boaz, and they have a child named Obed, who has a child named Jesse, who has a child named David, who has a child named Jesus, and who is the Christ. So that was one of the strangers brought in, and really the covenant couldn't have happened without her. So this week we're going to look at another stranger brought into the covenant. But before we do, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the rain that's, that's uh, smattering on the roof right now. Uh, Lord, we have been in a drought for far too long, and we know that you caused the rain to fall on the righteous and the unjust, the sun to shine on the, on the holy and the profane. And so, Lord, we're, we're grateful for your general grace to us here. We don't deserve it. Uh, we don't deserve anything that you're sending to us. And yet, by your mercy and your kindness, here comes rain in a, in a parched and a dry area. So thank you for that. Lord, thank you for the really good news of our uh, business meeting this morning, the, the harmony that we're enjoying, uh, the place that we are. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to maintain the unity of the Spirit as you tell us in Ephesians. Um, may we do those things. And Lord, now as we turn to look at the story of Naaman, we need you to explain it to us. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds, our eyes, our ears, to see and to understand. But Lord, beyond just understanding, Lord, would you sink this story into our hearts? Make it real to us on a, on a very personal and a deep level. So be with us now as we look into your word, and we ask all of these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. So here's our next stranger to the covenant, and his name is Naaman. Um, as, uh, as Rich read for us, Naaman is a very important person. He is the commander of the army of the king of Syria. 
He, he's not some lightweight, low-ranking lieutenant. He is the commander of the army. So if you see Naaman, he's got five stars on his helmet. He is a bigwig. He's an important person. He has really got everything going for him at this point in his life, if you think about it. He is at the peak of his career. He's got no place to go up from here unless he assassinates the, the king and takes the throne. He is at the peak of his career right now. He's a great man with his master, so the king loves him. And he is in favor because the Lord had given him victory. Um, he, through Naaman, God had given victory to uh, Syria. So now, think about Syria for a second. Syria is not one of the big three in the Old Testament, right? There was Babylon, there was Assyria, there were Egypt. These were the major powerhouse economies and, and uh, armies in the Old Testament. But Syria is not some slacker either. They're, they're not somebody who gets trounced pretty regularly. They're a good, solid second place in, in the, the military and economic power in the Middle East. And so this is who they, they are facing. Now, Syria is just north of Israel. So where we're at in, in redemptive history here is the, the judges ruled. Remember with Ruth? That was during the time of the judges. At the end of the time of judges, Israel said, we want a king. And so God gave him Saul, and then removed Saul, gave him David. And so David ruled, and he united the two kingdoms. Israel in the north, Judah in the south, became one kingdom under David. His son Solomon took the throne, and he ruled over that. But at the end of that, God said, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hands, and it's going to split again. And so now we're into First and Second Kings, and that's the period where the kings are continuing to rule over a divided kingdom. And so the north is called Israel. That's where Samaria is. And so that northern portion is where Syria bumps into. That Syria is up above it, where pretty much where modern Syria is today. And this is where Naaman is from. He is a pagan. He is a Gentile. He is outside the covenant. But God himself, what the author tells us is the Lord, Yahweh, had given him victory. So he was the one who's, who's the military commander. He is at the peak of his power, his fame. Everybody knows him and loves him. He's a mighty man of valor. And what we'll see as we look through this, he was extremely rich. He had tons of money. The money he brings to give to um, Elisha the technical term for how much money that is is, golly, that's a lot. There was a ton of cash that he brought to give him. So this man has got money. He's got fame. He's got position and power. And he has had victory even over Israel because the girl who talks to him is a slave from Israel. So Syria has come down, has raided the northern portion of, of Israel and carried captives away, and he gets one. So this is a man who is at the peak. He has got everything. What more could, could Naaman ask for? What more could he want? And yet the author drops in this one little phrase just at the end, but he was a leper. He's got everything, but he was a leper. Now, we think of leprosy, we think of that horrible wasting disease where digits fall off and, and it's just terrible. That's not what leprosy is in the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament, leprosy was any number of skin diseases. So it could be a really bad rash of psoriasis. And, and that's what this could be, is leprosy. It would be this white flaking stuff on him somewhere on his body. But whatever it is, and we don't really have to worry too much about what it is technically, the point is it made him um, an, a, a slight outcast. It was something that made him unhappy. Now, if we move inside the borders of Israel, there were some strict rules about lepers. 
They had to go around and announce, unclean, unclean. They had to stay outside the camp or outside the city. They couldn't mingle amongst the people because these diseases could spread. And so when we think of it from Israel's perspective, it's got some really rigid rules around it. Not so much the surrounding area outside that. It was still making kind of a social outcast to have this skin disease because it looked like something was wrong. So this is something that bothers me. And he's got everything. He has everything he could imagine and yet he's not happy. There's one thing that continues to bother him. He's a leper. He's got a skin disease. And it's not stated explicitly in the text, but it sounds like this guy has tried everything. He's, tried, he's gone to everybody to see, can you cure this? Can you make the skin disease go away? And nobody has succeeded. Um, nobody gets it. So the reason I say that is because this little girl from the land of Israel who is in his service offers him a cure, and he takes it. Picture the contrast between these two, right? You've got Naaman, this mighty man, second to the king, rich, powerful. And who's going to tell him how he can be healed? A little Hebrew slave. The exact opposite of Naaman. Everything Naaman is, she's not. So first of all, she's a girl. It's a, it's a young girl. Women are, we get this idea that in the Old Testament, women are just horribly treated and they're, they're second-class citizens and they're, they're dirt and they don't really count for anything. It's not exactly the, the picture we get from the Old Testament when we look at it. But, man is a man and this little girl is a girl. Men naturally have more strength, more upper body strength, more that kind of stuff. When you are in a town and the bad guys are coming at you, who do you want to put the hand, who do you want to hand a, a shield and a sword to defend you? The strongest person you can find. That's who should be out defending you. So that's why in, in these times, men were more highly praised because they were the ones out fighting the battles. Um, it's not that women couldn't. It's that men were more suited to that kind of thing. So just socially, he's seen as more valuable. Now today, we, you know, today things are more equalized. You can put a woman in a fighter jet and she can lose just as much damage as a man. It's not a, a physical you know, need to be able to do those things. You can put a woman in a tank and she can drive over the same stuff a guy could drive over. The technology is equalized. Isn't that great news? Women can kill just as well as men. Isn't that wonderful? It's, it's uh, startling how good we are at blowing stuff up and breaking things. But back then, you didn't have that kind of technology. Your technology was a shield. Your technology was a sword. These things were heavy. And so she is less than he is physically. And that counted for something then. She's a Hebrew. She's a Hebrew. She's from the tribe of Israel. And she's now in Syria. She's an outsider. She's the alien. And she's a slave. He is as free as he's ever going to be. He is at the top of his game. And she has been captured from her home, taken to Syria, and put in the service of somebody she doesn't necessarily want to serve. She couldn't be more opposite to Naaman if we tried. It just doesn't get any, any more opposite. And yet she comes to her mistress, to her, her, um, her, her Naaman's wife, her owner, if you will, and says, oh, but if he could just go to Samaria and talk to the prophet there in Samaria, that prophet that's in Samaria, he would cure him. So she brings this message of healing to him. And now look at it from Naaman's perspective. Why on earth would I go to Samaria to seek a prophet to heal me? 
the, the way that people understood how these things works is they were territorial gods. Our God beat their God. Because we went in and we took some of their, so their towns. Why on earth would I go ask that God to heal me? I've already beaten him. My God has already beaten him up. It just makes no kind of sense. I think that gives you a picture of how desperate Naaman is. He really needs to be healed. So when this girl says that there's a prophet, there's somebody in Samaria who can heal you, Naaman says, all right, we'll, we'll try that. I'm, I'm that desperate, I'm going to try it. What we first see, this first little hint here is this upside-down nature of the way things work. He's coming at this with his preconceived ideas, his cultural background, his understanding of theology, of society, that kind of stuff, and he's going to come into Israel and find it very upside-down, very different. It's going to be very opposite of what he's expecting. So the girl comes to him and says, there's a prophet who can cure you. So he goes to the king, and he explains what the girl said, and the king says, go, and I'm going to send a letter with you to the king of Israel. And we don't get to know what the letter is yet, but he goes. So he goes, and he brings that technical term, a lot of stuff, a lot of money, and he goes to the king of Israel. And he shows the, the letter to the king of Israel, and it says, um, when, you, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you naming my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. Time out. The girl said there's a prophet in Samaria. Why did he go to the king in Samaria? Well, because we have to remember, we're looking at this scenario because we've read the Old Testament, we've read the Bible, we have a, a Hebrew way of approaching it. But if you step outside that boundary and you look at how Samaria looked at it, well, in Samaria, the king was a very influential person. The king would come and offer sacrifices. In some other cultures, the king might be considered a son of the gods. In some other cultures, he might even be a god. So this, this division between church and state didn't exist outside of Israel at that time. They were blended. The king had that authority. Beyond that, if he's looking for a prophet, from his perspective, of course I would go talk to the king. Kings have this, this group of prophets who surround them and give them advice and tell them what to do. We saw that in Ahab. Ahab is, is the king of Israel. This was before uh, the current king, who doesn't get named, by the way. He's, he's not even given a name in this. But before this, Ahab is the king. Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah at the southern tribes, comes up and says, let's be pals. Bad move. And, and so Ahab says, yeah, well, go with me, and we're going to go beat up this other king. And all the prophets around Ahab are going, yeah, baby, go do it. You're going to kick him. You're going to, you're going to take him out. You're going to win. This is going to be great. And Jehoshaphat's got the sense to go, but isn't there a prophet of Yahweh around that we can ask? And Ahab says, well, yeah, he is. But he always tells bad things. I don't, he didn't like me. I don't like him. So this is the picture of what the nations had, is they had prophets around them, but they tended to be yes men. And Naaman knows those aren't the prophets that I'm looking for because they don't deliver. But there might be a prophet there. So he goes to the king. He goes to the king of Israel and says, please cure me. This letter from my king is asking you to cure me. So he's expecting the king to assign one of his prophets to go and, and do something and, and make something happen and, and he'll be cured. That is not the way it works in Israel. This is that second little point of, wait a minute, this isn't what I was expecting. In Israel, what's the relationship between the true prophets and the king? It's been extraordinarily adversarial. Remember Elisha, who was before Elisha. Elijah was right in Ahab's face. So the, the distinction in Israel, even in apostate northern tribes, is there is a distinction to be made between priest and king. 
They don't blend. There is a division in Israel between church and state. The king cannot have that kind of authority. Only the priests may do that. The king is not the prophet. The prophet works not for the king. He works for Yahweh, who is the true king. So this is upside down from what Naaman is expecting. So he goes to the king innocently and says, Here, can you cure me? Send, send the prophet. Make it better. The king of Israel, <laughs> these guys were never the best. You know, never the top tier. He tears his clothes and he goes, Am I God to kill and make alive? Oh, thank heavens, he got it right. <laughs> At least he hasn't promoted himself to God. He may be worshiping false gods, but he hasn't promoted himself. Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure his man of this man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel is looking at Syria, who has just completed some successful raids on his northern border, taken some towns from him, carried off captives. Suddenly, the military commander from that nation comes marching into Israel. And he doesn't come by himself. He's got horses and chariots, and he's got at least some stuff to carry all the goods that he's brought with him. He's got a big entourage traveling with him. So Jonathan and I were talking yesterday about Air Force stories, and you never get one general. You get a general and a bunch of colonels, and if there's enough stars, you get more stars. And just you, you never have a very important person show up in the military by themselves. It's always, there's a group of people around him. Naaman is like that. He is the top of the military. He didn't go by himself. He had all his people come with him. So look at it from the king of Israel's perspective. Oh my gosh, who can the Syrians? Is there an army with him? No, it's just this group. And so when he gets the letter and says, heal this man, he's like, I'm being provoked. Because what happens if I can't heal him? If I tell him, look, I don't do that, that's not, that's not something I do, then they're going to think that I'm picking on him, and I'm sure he's going to march back, meet up with his army, and come and take us over. Well, what happens if I try and it fails? This guy's just trying to start a war with us. He's just beaten us up before, and now he's coming to do it again. So he's desperate. That's why he tears his clothes, a sign of sorrow, a sign of repentance. And so... Somehow, we don't know how Elisha hears about this. Now, Elisha is this powerhouse prophet in Israel. Before Elisha, it was Elijah. And Elijah did some amazing things. He was a strong prophet for the Lord. He spoke mightily God's word. And when he was getting ready to die, he handed off his mantle to Elisha. And then he was assumed into heaven in a chariot of fire. It's just magnificent. So Elisha comes along, and we get a handful of stories of what Elisha does. By the way, at this point, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, and you get here, and you go, why is it so weird? Just these odd things happen. Like the very next story is, the prophets are out chopping wood, and a guy loses the head of his axe, and he goes to Elisha and says, it was borrowed. And so Elisha makes it float. Next story. It's like, why are there so, all these jumbled stories? Remember, these are being summed up. This is over a large period of time. And it's trying to show the power of what God's doing in Israel, apostate Israel. Israel, who won't listen to him, has had a prophet who can make iron float. That's what we're supposed to see. So this is the Elisha that we're talking about. He's doing some amazing things. He, God is mightily working in Elisha. Somehow he hears about Naaman. He, somehow he hears that the king of Israel is really dismayed. Maybe it's supernatural. Maybe it's just one of the courtiers came and said, Hey, Elisha, this is what's going on. We don't know. It doesn't matter. But he sends word to the king and he says, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. 
He knows there's a prophet in Israel. The little girl told him. But he wants, Elisha wants him to come not to one of the court prophets who can't do anything, by the way. He sends him, he says, send him to me, a true prophet of God, that he may know that I'm a prophet, and by extension, that he may know that Yahweh is real. That's what he asked him to do. So here's the story. Man came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at Elisha's house. This is an important man who is used to being important. He is not used to being put off, ignored. He is the top guy when he walks into any room. And so he shows up at Elisha's house with his whole coterie, his whole court comes with him. And I don't know, I, I wish it explained it. I just always picture Elisha's house as just this little hovel, like a mud hut or something. And you see these, these immaculately dressed Syrians march up to this little hovel and knock on the door. He's expecting the prophet to come out and do something for him. And so here's what happens. Elisha sends a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He doesn't even answer the door. He says, you, go tell him this. What, what is going on there? Again, Naaman's expectation is turned upside down. It's not what he was anticipating. Why does Elisha do that? Why doesn't he come out and tell him that? Because the problem that Naaman has is not his leprosy. That's not his major problem. It is a problem, but it's not his main problem. His main problem is the picture you just saw. I, in all my regalia, in all my dress, in all my horses and chariots, in all my power, I am going to come to the prophet and demand he hail me. It's pride. This man thinks that he is something special. Do you remember how this started? The Lord gave victory to Syria through him. Even what he's doing, even at the place that he's climbed in life has not been because of his power and his authority and his, his wisdom and his smarts and all of that. The Lord has given him that. And so when he comes to Elisha, Elisha knows his problem is pride and that's what he's got to deal with first. So he won't even show up and talk to him. It's kind of like the young girl at the beginning. Do you remember that story? I just said it so you better. <laughs> the young girl doesn't even get to talk directly to him. She speaks to his wife. So now he comes to Elisha, and he's another Hebrew that won't speak directly to him. Speaks through a mediary. Go and wash. Go wash seven times in the, in the Jordan, and you'll be clean. And Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and, and his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. I wanted a show. I expected the prophet to come out and do some magic for me. I thought he would come out and impress me with his power and his, his incantations and maybe shake a bag of bones over my hand or whatever it is. And That's what I was expecting. What did I get? Go wash. He's mad. He's, this is not what he wanted. He's expecting to be treated like the man he is. Well, the man he thinks he is. He's actually being treated like the man he is. And so he's angry about it. He says, Are not Abana and Parpar, or Farpar, the, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? He's looking at Damascus and saying, But we've got really nice rivers, and this is a little mud hole, and I'm supposed to be washing that? Well, I could have just done that at home. He is really upset about this. But his servants came near and said to him, again, it's the wrong person, isn't it? It was a Hebrew slave girl who came and said to him. Now it's his servants come and say to him. 
He is so mad, he's so bent out of shape, he's so heading in the wrong direction, God uses the lowest of the low, his servants. And they address him, my father. Um, that is not some weird family thing where he's made his family servants. That is a term of great respect. They could have said, my Lord, Adonai, but instead they say, Abi, my father. They, they, it's a sign of respect, but it's also a sign of intimacy. This is a good man. He has been good to his servants. They, they respect him and they love him that way. Now, what comes next is a little troubling because the ESV is the only Bible that I could find that translates it like this. The ESV says, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? What every other translation says is something like the NIV. If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? It's, it's a slight difference in who is doing what. And when I looked at the Hebrew, I can see where it could kind of maybe go either way. It's a little, a little vague. But I'm going to go with the majority because I'm a chicken. I'm not a Hebrew expert. Most of the translators say, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So here's what Naaman expected. Naaman expected, I will come up to the prophet and I will say, I would like you to make me clean. And the prophet will say, you have one quest. You must go slay three lions and bring me their tails. And then when you bring me these three tails, then I will see that your heart is pure and you're worthy and I will heal you. But he was expecting something like that. Remember when Saul wanted to marry, uh, when David wanted to marry Saul's daughter? Saul said, okay, here's the deal. Go get a hundred Philistine foreskins. Well, you don't get them voluntarily. You have to kill them first. And so that's the kind of quest that he was expecting. I'm going to have this great quest. I will demonstrate to the prophet how worthy I am because I'm such a mighty man of valor. And he'll give me this quest and I will go do it. And that will prove that I'm worthy of doing it. That's what his, his, um, his, his servants were saying. If the prophet had told you to do something great, you'd do it in a heartbeat. You would have never batted an eye. That would be right in line with what you were expecting the prophet to do. So they ask him, how much more than when he tells you to do something simple? Go wash and be clean. The prophet's not asking you to be this mighty man of valor. The prophet is telling you, just go wash and be clean. Go do that. The, the picture here is that there was a pastor that, that said, to be saved, you have to have nothing. And so many people don't have that. Naaman didn't have that. Naaman didn't have nothing. He didn't come to the prophet empty-handed and say, I, I, I can do nothing. Would you heal me? He came full. He came with all of his stuff. He had to be emptied so that he could then go out and wash. So why go wash in the Jordan? Why not something else? Because that would empty him out. That would make him go, okay, so it's not my power. It's not my skill. It's not my money. I'm not going to pay him for this stuff. I'm just going to go wash in the, in the river. So he does. He just trots down and he washes himself seven times. And when he comes out, he's clean. The, the flesh, the, the psoriasis, the skin disease, whatever it is, is gone. And the flesh is like a young child's. So battle scars are gone if they were there. Uh, if his sin, skin is getting old and saggy because he's an older man, that's gone. It's like brand new flesh on him. And so his response is that he now knows something is going on here. He, once he humbled himself, once he could do, I can't do my mighty deeds, I can't show how rich and powerful and influential I am, I'll just go do what 
anybody could do. Anybody could walk down a little Jordan and dip themselves seven times. I'm not anybody. I'm somebody significant, but okay, I'll do what anybody could do. And he humbles himself to that point, and in that, God saves him. God cures him. He cured him not just of the skin disease. As we'll see in this coming section, he cured him of his pride, too. Listen to what he says next. He returned to the man of God in all his company and came and stood before him. Don't miss that. He stood before Elisha. What happened before is though everybody else stood before him. So he comes to Elisha and he expects Elisha to stand before him. Now he stands before Elisha. He, the way the author has written that is now we see the tables turn. Elisha is the greater man and man is, is lowered. He came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. From being washed, from washing in the, in the Jordan River, coming out and being healed, he doesn't say, Behold, I know that Yahweh is stronger than my gods in Syria, and therefore I'll worship him. He doesn't say, Behold, Yahweh is able to heal when other gods are unable to heal. He must be a god of healing. Something much more radical has happened to him. He looks out and he says, There is no God in all the earth other than Yahweh. That is a radical, deep, heartfelt transformation that God has accomplished in him by curing him of his leprosy, by curing him of his pride, by leading him to the point where he would humble himself and dunk himself in a river that common people wash in and come away clean. He had to learn it wasn't about him. It wasn't about his authority and his power. And so he says, now accept a present from your servant. But he said, Elisha now speaks to him. He would not speak to him when he came in his whole power and his authority. And now he comes, he announces, there is no God but Yahweh. And Elisha speaks to him. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. He wanted to give him a present. Now, instead of coming to buy his healing, here, take these things that you may heal me, because that's how the court works in other places, is you pay a profit and you get what's coming. Elisha wouldn't take it. And now he comes not saying, hey, let me pay you because you healed me. Now he's saying, I'm overwhelmed. I want to give you this present. I want to give this gift to you. I want to thank you for my heart, not by your favor, but thank you for your favor. And Elisha says, no, I won't have anything to do with it. I won't touch it. So Naaman says, If not, then please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any god but Yahweh. So if you won't take from me riches and gold and changes of clothes and outrageous things, then give me dirt. Yes, strange request. Two mule loads full of dirt. What's he going to do with that? Well, one of the commentators mentioned that this was not uncommon to, to move dirt around if, if, if you found favor in that place. I think what, what Naaman is doing in his brand new faith, in his incomplete understanding of theology, in his grasp of what he's experienced so far, what he's saying is, I don't want to worship any other God, so I'm going to take some of this holy dirt. I'm going to take some of this holy land back with me when I go back to Syria. And so I picture him maybe going in his backyard and dumping it out and making a little mound, and that's where he's going to worship God, because that's the ground on which he, he experienced the Lord. 
But it's not because he thinks that if he worships on Syrian ground, somehow he's worshiping a false god. He knows that he's just confessed there is no god in, in all the earth but Yahweh. But he's bringing a bit of Israel with him. Just a touch of Israel so that he can remember who this god is. And so Elijah says that's fine. And then he asks for one more thing. He says, in, the, in this manner may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant for this matter. So here's his problem. He is highly placed. All the success that we mentioned before now is a problem. Because since I'm the right-hand man to my king, when, we go, when my king goes in to worship his false god, who I don't believe in anymore, he leans on my arm, and I must bow down with him. But he's, he looks and he goes, but I know that's a fake god. I know women is nothing. But I don't have a choice. So would the Lord pardon me when I go do this? Would, would the Lord make an exception for me so that he knows that my heart is not worshiping women? I just have to go through these motions because that's my role in that kingdom. Could the Lord grant me that? And I love what Elisha says. He says, go in peace. He gives him this honor. He says, you can go and do that. It's okay. As long as you're worshiping Yahweh, not worshiping Yonan, we understand you have to make certain adjustments. Now, is that a blanket excuse? Now we can go worship in other churches and other, you know, temples and stuff. This isn't a general principle that applies to everybody. As a matter of fact, keep reading Kings. They do this, and Yahweh gets really mad at them. They set up temples to Baal, and they set up Ashtoreth poles, and they worship in high places and under green trees, and the prophets come and rail against them. So why is it that Naaman gets a, a, a waiver on this one? Why does he get an excuse on this one? Well, this is where I think this fits in with our theme for Advent. Jesus hasn't come yet. There is still what Paul would refer to as a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. The, the nation of Israel is still a separate entity that they, the Gentiles are not to be part of in that way. They're not to mix into it. So there is coming a time when Jesus will be born... And he will defeat all of these false gods. He will break the power of all of these false gods. They'll all be broken. And at that point, Paul says in Acts, the time of ignorance is over. And God is sending out his church to all the nations to call you to worship the God in, in truth and in, in grace. So at this point in redemptive history, it's just a glimpse of what's coming. It's, it's a hope of what's coming, is that Yahweh won't be worshipped in Israel alone. Like Jesus told the Samaritan woman, we won't worship on this mountain or that mountain, but whoever worships him will be worshiping him in spirit and in truth. This is the picture. This is the glimpse. This is the shadow that happens beforehand. And how is that possible? How is it possible that worship would no longer be contained in a temple in Jerusalem or in, in Israel or in Judah? Because Jesus came and when he died, the, the curtain ripped in two from top to bottom. The, the way into the holy place has now been opened through the blood of Christ. And so while Naaman gets a pass on this, it's, it's a hint to the future that the nations will come in. The nations will be welcomed in. But at this point in redemptive history, it, it can't happen yet. So now we have Naaman has gone off and he is a witness. 
to Yahweh's power because surely somebody's going to say, what happened? I thought you had a thing. What happened? Oh, let me tell you what happened. I went to Israel and I met a prophet and he told me to dump myself in the water. And really? We got water here. I don't know if you noticed Damascus has got water. Yeah, I know. I was pretty mad, but Yahweh cured me. He made me whole. He is the only God in all the world. There's no way that, that uh, Naaman cannot discuss that when somebody says, what happened to your, your growth or whatever it was? Now he's, he's going to tell the story. But not yet. We're not there yet. We've got to wait for Jesus. So this is why this is an Advent series is we're looking forward. We're aching to get into the covenant. But we're not quite there yet. We have hope because Ruth came into the covenant. We have hope because Naaman put his faith in Yahweh. And so we'll see as we go through the rest of the series, there is this coming promise. There is this coming hope that that, that division will be gone, that all the nations will come and worship. So with Naaman, the military commander, the, the strong man, he is able to come in by humbling himself, by acknowledging he, what he brings with him can't help. Now that's not the end of the story. I cut it off early. Uh, what happens next is one of uh, Elisha's servants goes running out to Naaman and says, oh, wait, by the way, um, some folks showed up and, and Elisha said, I can have some stuff. Give me some stuff. And the way that story ends is Elisha, he's a prophet. What on earth does this guy think? I'm going to go lie to the, to the prophet of God and he's not going to figure this out. So he goes and he says, uh, Elisha says, so where were you? He says, I went no place. <laughs> Classic kid answer, where were you? Nowhere. Okay, nowhere is a bad place. Where were you? I wasn't anywhere. And he, he discovers exactly, he tells him what happened, and he says, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And so he went out from his presence a leper like snow. So I think where this goes, where the author of Second Kings takes this, is this is a blazing accusation against Israel. This is showing Israel's folly because Naaman, this outsider, comes in, gets cured, and worships, worships Yahweh, and yet the servant of the prophet does the exact opposite. And so the leprosy, instead of being on the Gentile, comes on the Jew. And so I think it's, a, it's just an accusation against that. But the picture of Naaman in the middle of that, the beautiful picture of this man, Naaman, coming to faith, is, is incredible. And it, it does, it gives us hope. We're looking forward to that. That's, that's our hope. That's our future. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for saving Naaman. We look forward to talking with him in the new heavens and the new earth, hearing his stories. There's so much more of his life that we don't even get a, a taste of. We get this small glimpse into his life. Lord, what did you do in his life after he returned to Syria? What did you do when he, he entered the house of Rimon? And what was he thinking? What was he feeling? Uh, Lord, we look forward to hearing the stories. But in the meantime, the promise of Naaman in this gives us hope for the future that we're anticipating filled in Jesus Christ. He will be the one that breaks down the barrier. He will be the one that saves the nations, that brings everyone to worship in Israel, or in, in Jerusalem at the temple, the body of Christ being the temple. So Lord, thank you for this. And I pray that these kind of stories, these kind of things would incline us to look forward to Christmas, the incarnation in a wonderful way, would stir in us a desire to see Jesus born so that we might come in. So thank you for doing these things, Lord, and bless our time. We, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.